this is jumping ahead a little bit, but we we are running uh, out of time, so I want to I want to bring this up. <laughs> we'll just go back and do the podcast. We will. Again, I'll, I'll just reset it. We'll just re-enter my portal and we'll do it again. And you guys, I will be older, but you guys won't be any older. This time, I'll just kill Jason in the beginning in a graveyard. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> That'll be a much better podcast. That'll solve all of our problems. Bang. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you. Says you. You'll have to edit the podcast. The Incomparable Podcast. Number 77. February 2012. It's time for another Incomparable Podcast and an edition of our book club. I'm Jason Snell, the host of The Incomparable. Our topic today is the latest novel from prolific beloved author Stephen King. This one is 112263, a tale of time travel and uh, and so much more. Joining me to discuss Stephen King's latest are Lisa Schmeiser. Hi, Lisa. Good evening. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Also joining us finally on the same podcast, Serenity Caldwell. Hi, Ren, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Jason? I'm doing great. It is it is great to finally uh, have you and Lisa both on the same podcast. I know it's it's kind of it's eerie. eerie. Yeah, I wonder if the universe will do something horrible like cause earthquakes or other. Nah, never mind. Nuclear. We'll, 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 we'll get, skip that. We'll get to that. Don't court the or or, or worse, accession of American states to Canada. <gasps> it makes you, know, me... you say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Also joining me today are John Syracusa. Hi, John. Hi, Jason. You're a huge uh, Stephen King fan, are you not? I am. I've read almost all of his books, wow. and that's a lot of books. Uh, yeah, I've realized I haven't read that many of his books, and I probably should uh, should uh, get get on that. Um, you should. Yeah, I should. And uh, also joining us, one final contestant, Dan Morin. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. Good to be here. You just finished this book like uh, 10 minutes ago, right? About about twenty minutes before this episode, yeah, yeah, it was pretty close. I I plowed through about five hundred pages in the last day. Well, Under the wire. So the 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 downside of that is that who knows what your recall is going to be like. But the good side is you read it recently. At least yes. he's not just shouting incoherently, Jim Law, Jim Law, Jim, Jim Law. <laughs> oh man, I I had a um I read this at my uh uh mostly at my parents' house when I was there for Christmas, and uh, I had a. I like had a nightmare about Jimla at one point. I was like, ah, Jimla. For for a book that's not outwardly like a horror book, there are some terrifying parts of this book. Just little moments. So mm-hmm. so I guess we should start at the beginning. Um this book, obviously eleven twenty two sixty three is the day of the Kennedy assassination. And this book is apparently a book that Stephen King originally thought about writing in nineteen seventy one, and he didn't get around to it until uh two thousand nine, two thousand ten when he wrote this book. Um, and it's about a, a a teacher in Maine, of course, it's Maine, who goes who who has a a guy who runs a diner, who decides he would be a good uh, candidate to um, go through a time portal and try to stop the Kennedy assassination. Of course, how many of those books have we read? Uh, and, Seven and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I li- that part of it is really interesting because it's um it's it's very Stephen King it's it's uh, it's so almost pedestrian and yet also outrageous at the same time that there's of course there's a guy who has a diner where in the storeroom there's a time portal to the 1950s of of course there is and then uh but 
what I like, because I don't think about this sort of genre for Stephen King, is that he's got a very good grasp of of time travel mechanics to the point where he, the um, you know our our main our main character whose name is Jake, Jake Epping, um, he uh, he is much less familiar with Al, the uh, the guy who runs the diner, than Al is with him because Al has had many years to think about using Jake as a uh, time travel subject while he was doing his own his own time traveling. Whereas for Jake, it's sort of like he sees Al one day and then the next day Al is many years older and is about to die from lung cancer, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, and, and so he sends him on this mission to uh, go through, go through a time portal to 1958. So we got the time portal. And I think, I think you're reading a, a Stephen King novel or you're reading any kind of genre novel and you take the time portal and you're like, all right, so there's time travel. Got it. And yet one of the things that he hits you with right away is that there's this character, there's this guy, the yellow card man, just as you emerge from this time portal, the first thing you see is this guy who seems to know that something is wrong and that you shouldn't be there. So right away, he does set that little, that little point of, you know, it's not going to be, it's not like this completely straight kind of, I step back in time and now I'm going to do some things like right away. There's somebody standing there saying, crazy things basically and the and the yellow card man is trying to get money and so he can go buy something at the at the local uh liquor store i uh i thought one of the really interesting things that caught me about king's time travel methodology here is that it's very heavily you know sort of repeated that every time someone goes through the time portal and then it, it's basically resets whatever the previous trip did. Right. You can you can go is, back and change the fascinating. change the past as much as you want, and when you come back to the future, it will be changed. But the next time you re-enter the bubble, it reverts. You hit the reset because you go back yeah. to the same time. Yeah, you'll end up at the exact same moment. That's just such a smart narrative conceit because you can write yourself out of all sort of sorts of dead ends or, or logical problems. Then you can all just you re- hit the reset the button problem. if you need to. Yeah, yeah, I think that's genius. But it, I love that there's. An it's also fascinating too because it's so different from a lot of the portrayals of time travel where it's you know, you know, he doesn't have to go back and stop himself from doing something, right? No, it's because like a fixed all he has to do is portal. step through and it's yeah. bam, you know. Reset. Although, as mm-hmm. we find out very much later in the book, it's not necessarily a reset, more as it is a fork, but. But Even yeah, so. but but for all it's practical like purposes, yeah. it's there's a residue that's left. But for all practical mm-hmm. purposes, it's a reset. And and the the downside of that is we we see immediately with Al, where Al is dying of lung cancer, and Al has taken several trips. Actually, it turns out that Al has been getting why why is the meat in Al's diner so cheap? He's been getting it at 1958 prices <laughs> from 1958. And he keeps buying the same meat over and over again because he just keeps resetting. But Al, Al spends so much time there that he ages rapidly by modern standards. And yet at the same time, he kind of hasn't done anything because every right. time be- he enters, it's just a reset. So so you get the sense right right up front that you're investing, um, you know, you're investing your life in the time travel. And if it doesn't work out the way you like, it will be thrown away. Right. And it's also important to note that no matter how long you're gone in the past, you're only ever gone two minutes in from the present. Yes. So when, when Jake steps back through the time portal, he's he's only been gone a very short while. And the same way that Al only appears to go away for, you know, a night or whatever, and then comes back and is, you know, four or five years older. 
this would have been a whole different book if he had written it back in the 70s compared to when he well, wrote it now. Well, he, he was lazy and, and addicted to drugs and alcohol back then, so he wouldn't <laughs> no, have done what the I was, research. What I, not quite that. What I was going to say is if he had written it in the 70s, it would have ended up being more epic in scope like The Stand, I think. Because The Stand has this real young man's energy to it, I feel. This, this very brash, very black and white good versus evil. And this book is so nuanced when it compares to what is the greater good versus what are all the small goods. How do we decide what's good and what's evil? And like he has no problem drawing those lines and making those distinctions in his earlier work. But you get to something like Under the Dome or 112263, and there's all these questions about, well, how do we know that the actions we take are good when we can see that the consequences and the outcomes are bad? And, and it, it has a more middle-aged, I'm, I'm taking stock of my life feel to it, just, just as an undercurrent, which is kind of disturbing when you think that the protagonist is somebody in their late 30s, early 40s. <laughs> He has an arc as an author, but I think oh, yeah. at, the be- at the beginning of this book, uh, mm-hmm. the, I think this is Stephen King at his best, where he has the the time travel. He, he doesn't explain that. I'm like, oh, well, this is, you know, uh, there's some sort Waves of science experiment yeah. and the government is experiment. No, <laughs> there's, there's a no bubble. explanation. There's a right? thing. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's, there's a mechanic. There's a portal. I like, I like that there's no explanation because it's like you, we you, don't, you don't get distracted by the flaw in the logic. Yeah, we there's don't need There's a great line in the book where uh, mm-hmm. he talks about where Jake talks about going back to teaching and how much it fulfills him. And he says, I won't try to explain it because explanation is such cheap poetry. Yeah. And <laughs> that, that caught me on the way through because a, it's a great line and yes. B, it's like, well, you know, it sort of, you know, resonates with this book too. We don't need to know why the time travel works only that it does. And it's got a, it's got a hint of whimsy to it as well yeah. because he he loves he loves a little bit of, of whimsy like that the, selling the same hamburger to the people over and over again that's classic mm-hmm. Stephen King <laughs> and the whole the, how he so he doesn't want to explain it but how he lovingly describes the mechanics of feeling for the step and going mm-hmm. down through that is just straight up Stephen King at his best later oh, on yeah. in the book I'll talk about Stephen King at his worst uh-huh. uh, and a, a little hint of the slightly older Stephen King is the Yellow Card Man. Because mm-hmm. I, I, it's kind of weird. I, I don't. I haven't read nearly as many books as, as most of the other people who are normal uh, book club contributors. But the vast majority of novels that I've read are probably Stephen King books, and he's he's written a lot of books. And when you read this many novels by a, a single author, and especially if you're not as well read, where it's not like one of many authors that you've read like all of their novels, I I feel like, and I'm sure many of his his constant readers feel like they know this guy and. I know his bag of tricks. I feel like I know his mm-hmm. bag of tricks. And he knows that I know that he knows. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so it's kind of like this dance where it's like, like reading a Stephen King book is like kind of sitting down with an old friend and you're going to do this thing together. Uh, and I continue to get that feeling with this book. Uh, and in the beginning part, it's kind of like, you remember this part. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's the good stuff, right? <laughs> this, this time travel stuff with the resets and the rules and, and the yellow card man. It's like, all right, that's that's an oldie, but he's, you know, you've seen that before. Well, I'm doing that again. All right, I'm good. I'm with you. Uh, so it, it got off on the right foot, I think. All right. Also, uh, I guess even I noticed that the, by visiting Derry, which is a a town that he's used before that this is apparently an it reference right oh there's a i was yeah. about to say there's mm-hmm. a beautiful callback to the it universe um which is it beautiful but um <laughs> as somebody who has not read it and and had to look it up later just because it, I, I was curious about what he might be referencing there i i think um i think the dairy stuff i mean i knew that because it was in dairy that it, it, that's a town that he's visited in many of his books um but you know, it, it the dairy stuff more or less worked for me because the idea is that he's chasing down this first 
this character who's sort of uh, the the what the 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 janitor at his school, Harry Dunning, yeah, who mm-hmm. is, who was uh, had, had his uh, siblings and mother killed by his father, and um, and guy with it, the hammer, you know th- that mean. stuff with uh, where there's the storm drain and there's evil and the town isn't very friendly. That's actually I can just say I thought that was effectively creepy. Without mm-hmm. thinking that it was a reference to an, a book I didn't I, read. I agree. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And like like Jason, mm-hmm. I haven't read it, but I knew a little bit about it from, again, from The Dark Tower. But I, I looked up some of it, and I think what's important about it, even if you haven't read it, is that there are so much in there that's sort of a a foreshadowing of, uh, of Derry and Dallas, which, you know, keeps coming up, that those two cities mm-hmm. are linked. Um, yeah. The book depository and the storm drain, and even... Uh, Beverly and uh, and Richie and later on in the book we have that uh, uh, Mike and Bobby Jill who are sort of sort of parallels. There's also you know the fact that when when Jake first comes upon um, um Bevy and Richie they're dancing right, which is a huge yes. huge part of the book mm-hmm. and constantly coming up. And I sort of think yeah he likes tying stuff in and I think there's a there's a certain degree of that that's that's rewarding for a lot of readers. I love finding you know homages and references in books from authors that refer to previous things. you know it's a part of the reason I love reading series of books so much because um, there's a continuity to it. but I think even if you aren't familiar in depth with that particular work, I agree with Jason that it's it's effectively creepy the whole mm-hmm. the, the whole dairy scenes you know. The idea Frank that Dunning. they're just really they're just places that are soaked with bad juju. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. evil yeah. in this oh, just, in this place. And it's it was eerie. I was reading it at yeah. night, like before I went to bed, and I was like, man, I don't I don't really want to go to sleep. It's a yet. creepy book. Yeah. Uh, I'm surprised that dairy section works so well for you who didn't who haven't read it, because that's what I was thinking when I was reading it. I'm like, okay, I get this because I read another thousand page book, but pity the poor people who you know no, no. pity the poor people no. who don't no, I, I, I think I think the two kids who are apparently characters in it, I, I think are are effective in that they are trying to find some sort of life and are obviously struggling against some darkness in this terrible mm-hmm. town. And I find I and it's got the dancing, which becomes relevant later, and the the sense that this town is permeated by unfriendliness and evil. And then um you know, moving on from the references part of this to talk about the dairy section of this book is also uh Jake's uh first uh, first run at at changing history, where he and and it, and it foreshadows what's going to happen, which is he is very careful to wait until he has all the information possible. To you know, he has his run-ins with gamblers and underworld types, which is going to come back later. He um he has this uh, trial run where he waits to the last minute to try and intercede and prevent the 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 father from killing the mother and the kids, and he does all of that and goes back. And then resets and does it again. And what's interesting is instead of being there at the moment where this thing is going to happen in order to intercede, when he goes back the next time, he's sort of got all the information he needs. He realizes that the father is just a bad guy and he's mm-hmm. going to kill his whole family except for the one kid. And he just he goes to him months before and in like a, a deserted graveyard and just kills him. Yeah. Rather than defending the people, he just decides, I'm going to go back, which I think is interesting that he goes through all of this and then hits the reset button and decides, I, I didn't need all that information. This guy's just a bad guy. I'm just going to go well, kill him. Well, he's done all the research. Yeah, he wanted to be sure. Which yeah. is what happens mm-hmm. with Lee Harvey Oswald, is that Jake yeah. wants to be sure that there's not somebody, there's not a conspiracy, that it's just this one guy. Right. Well, and 
Al Al makes that very clear. He's like, you have to be absolutely sure because what happens if you screw up and then the president still gets shot and then everything still goes to hell or, well, it doesn't quite go to hell with the president. But, but we all assume. And with the guy who killed his family, he wanted to be sure because he's like, geez, I'm like uh, killing this guy. And yeah, he's a bad guy and everything. But like, is he really going to kill his family? And like, is he, you know, he, he had to commit, you know, it's not easy to work. It's not easy to work yourself up to kill somebody. It's not until he gets confirmation that he's already killed one family that he actually gets the gumption to go ahead and pull the trigger. Yeah, it's not your first time. Yeah, And and plus he witnesses it. I'm uh, Once again, I'll say I'm surprised that it works so well for everybody else. But for people who have read it, uh, as Lisa was saying, there is extra Mm -hmm. resonance to those characters because you know – I don't want to spoil it for the people who didn't read it, but it's not – you're not meeting them – uh, after the events of the book, and you're not meeting them before the events of the book. You're basically meeting them amidst the events of the book, and there's a sadness to that that you wouldn't get unless you read that other thousand-page book. Um, or or read the Wikipedia entry on it. <laughs> yeah, or, or read the whole thing, yeah. <laughs> Which some of us might have done. <laughs> there, there is a creepiness to... Uh, I don't want to get into it. That's a whole other podcast. But yeah, but, but yeah I, I, using Derry as a character, Stephen King loves inanimate things as characters houses as characters towns towns as characters uh and Derry was a character in this book and Mm -hmm. i think it helped it's a kind of a cheat but it helped Derry be uh, not Derry, helped dallas become more of a character because dallas has has not been heavily featured in past books Mm -hmm. but comparing it to Derry, it's like oh geez this is like the Derry of the south (laughs) you've already been you've already been primed you know you've got a frame of reference and so that makes it easier to sketch it out a little bit as opposed to having to go through and uh frankly, do a lot of research. It's <laughs> a nice shorthand. Well, I think in general, Stephen King does a very good job personifying every single town that we visit in the past and makes it very clear, this is this type of town. In some ca- in some ways, the people we talk to and the kite, like getting the Sunliner in the very first little town in Maine, you instantly get the picture of that kind of place. And Derry... You start to get the creepy time travel-ish stuff in Derry and how things can go wrong in the obdurate past, and that kind of carries over. I feel like it snowballs as you go from town to town to town. But he has a mm-hmm. really, really great personification of each town. The difference between Jody and Dallas and Fort, and even in Fort Worth. Fort Worth, yeah. Yeah. They're all very mm-hmm. clear pictures of each city. Despite, I mean, I don't think I've been to – I've been to Dallas very briefly – but aside from that, you get a very clear picture of how he wants these towns to look at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, let's let's move ahead then to Jody, to Texas, and and specifically to the small town where he becomes um, an English teacher. And I guess he he's briefly in Florida, but you know, the, the really the important that doesn't work out. For that him. doesn't work out. <laughs> no, <laughs> he gets the sense that he he needs to move on before they firebomb. And, and it's a good experience of showing like this time travel thing. He doesn't quite have the knack of it yet. Like he's mm-hmm. he's he's good enough to get out of there alive, but he realizes he kind of messed up. Yeah. So he's yeah. still he's learning the ropes of this time travel thing. He's only beginning to understand what he doesn't know. And very cleverly, by setting the time portal in 1958, Stephen King makes the. Uh, not only cranks up the, um, the the jeopardy of of messing up because you have to live through um, five years in order to get to the date of the assassination, uh, but it also gives him time to have his character move to this town and meet these people because really that this is what the book is about. This is the book is about 
uh, this guy and the relationships that he makes in the past. And um, while he's got the, this mission of his from the future hanging over his head. So I, you know, I think this is a really charming section where you've got these people and, you know, he's meeting Mm -hmm. all the, all the people at the school in, uh, in, in Jody. And he sort of accidentally becomes more entwined with their, their lives and their culture than he's really intended because he's thinking I'm you know I'm gonna lay low I'm from the future I'm here on a mission and of course he ends up being completely entwined in the in the life of this small town and uh, because it is a small town and there's nothing he can do about it and he and he gets to know all these people and he falls in love with the new the new school librarian uh, who is Sadie and uh you know, I, I really like this part. I, I, I This is going to be one of those things that I think, depending on what you want out of a book like this, you may view this as being, uh, I don't know, I, I think people might view this as being an interminable section where he's really not advancing his, his mission very much, and instead he's just getting to know the people. But I actually loved this part. I, I think if you think that, you're not reading. Close. There's you're, something wrong Agreed. with you. Yeah. No, the whole, point, the whole point of this segment is to, is to set up his personal stakes, because... Remember, Al picked him because he was like, well, Jake, you have nobody here. You have no attachments. You kind of live lightly on this town anyway. No one is really going to miss you. And then he goes back to the past, and there are all of a sudden a lot of people who know about him and his welfare, and they will miss him, and they will care. And unfortunately, this this develops right around the same time that he's got to start surveilling Oswald and carrying out an assassination and I think it raises the dramatic stakes, and it also shows whatever whatever growth he's going to have as a protagonist over the course of the book, too. It's it's absolutely necessary. And it also sets up the you know I think what manages to be a rather heartbreaking story, in in many ways, right? You know, yeah. That the the the, the final chapter oh, was gosh. just even even before, <laughs> oh, even boy. before that. You know, the part Let's where there I was talking to I was okay. sorry, yeah, I was. <laughs> There, there, I mean, it needs to be it needs to be that invested, right, in order for you to feel strongly about those characters and to like these characters. Well, and meanwhile, yeah. the clock is ticking down, right? I mean, that's the be- beauty of right. it is you've got this nice story that on a, on its own would be a nice story, but mm-hmm. we know where Jake is really from, you know, we, and we do know that he's kind of a rootless guy, and he had his alcoholic wife that he got divorced from, and he's there's nobody to miss him, and. And now he's putting down roots and he's making these connections and that would be a nice story, but you've got – the book is 11-22-63, right? The, yeah. the clock is ticking and you know that for him to fulfill his mission that uh, that everything is going to be – he can't – you know, th- there's an, a clear expiration date on his relationships with these people, which is makes it that much more affecting. Uh, for for this longer section, the reason I think it needs to be longer like this, uh, and you thought maybe people would think it was interminable, is because it's a it's the equivalent of the movie where you have the uh, cowboy go live with the Indians or even something like Avatar or whatever. He's on a mission, but the mission takes a long time, and he has to become integrated with these people during the mission, and he goes. You native. have Harrison Ford building the barn in Witness. Yeah, or, or Kevin Costner and Dances with Wolves. He goes native. And yeah, that's yeah. the long-term missions. It's hard to stay on mission for a long time. So he ends up, he, he's, I'm integrating into the native population. I'm learning. And then eventually you, you wake up and you're Kevin Costner and you're wearing a feather on your head or whatever. <laughs> you know? You've actually, John, you've actually raised, um, and I'm not even sure I'd call it a criticism. It was just something that tickled the back of my head, is you have somebody who's in their early 40s who is now accustomed to a world of 
instantaneous wireless connectivity with the internet and and a world of cable TV and everything that entails too. And you're flung backwards to a time where you don't have that many choices in entertainment and you are stuck with the periodic, you're, you're stuck with the card catalog at the library if you need to find something. And it's just a radically different way of living. And this guy seems to seamlessly acclimate. Well, and I, and I don't know I, about I just, seamlessly though. I, I mean, I, I actually think that Stephen King does a pretty good job throughout of depicting the about neither saying oh it was a better time a simpler time no i'm not saying that it's just it's just rather he lives really easily in a period and and perhaps it just speaks to the people i know who go into cold sweats if they don't if they don't have internet access for 24 right. well, hours well he does he does throw his phone in a pond <laughs> it's yeah. sort of a ceremonial dumping of it uh, I, I think it's a personality type though because he's yeah. the he's an english teacher remember he's yeah. not a tech nerd he's not even yeah. a geek of any kind and you all these people who say boy i, I think i would be happier in a simpler time I'll, for some of them i think it's true it's just got to be exhausting trying to remember that you could never ever talk about the carolina panthers also keep in mind that jim <laughs> that, that uh that uh al al mm-hmm. leaves him a a, a big file with his research in it, which is Stephen King's way of of not having him have whole scenes where he's incredibly frustrated by trying to remember things that are happening or doing even more research using archaic research techniques. He sort of just says, "There's a file," so let's. Hmm. He he doesn't need to do all that. He doesn't I need think to fight. the other the other There's thing that's really really interesting about this, and I thought about while while reading this is he sort of jumps around and glosses over parts. Right? You know, there are a couple points where he's like, "Ah, I was here for a while and I left. I was here for mm-hmm. a while and I left." Um, and I thought, well, that's weird, you know, like, this is really, how much of this, like, how close are we going to get at various points here? But what's important to consider, and you sort of start to get hints for this, is that this is all written by him, right, after the fact? Right. Yeah, he makes several references to the unfinished manuscript and, oh, well, you're reading this. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's totally addressed to people. It's totally his recollections of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so... We learn at a very specific point in the book that he hasn't been as good at blending in as he thought he was, right? So I think that's that's significant in terms of him as a narrator in that, not that he's unreliable precisely, but that he is not writing perceptive. from a vantage point of that is not like as these things are happening to him. Right. And so he does think that, you know, it does seem like he blends in really well. And certainly there are things that he takes to very much in this in this environment. But, you know, you do get hints of the things that he regrets. There's a couple times where he's like, God, I would have killed for to have a cell phone right now because that mm-hmm. really would have solved all my problems. <laughs> um, and I think that the fact that he that he is telling this from from a sort of, you know, after the fact perspective is is very significant in terms of of how we see his character. Yeah. The other thing that kind of tickled at me through the Jody sequence as well is for and forgive the clumsy phrasing it's kind of the oh white male privilege you are so convenient <laughs> <laughs> no that's that's about it it's like boy. i like that because i thought that was realistic yeah uh, you know there's 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 the throwaway reference to oh there was the one gas station i stopped where oh those poor colored people had to wend their way through a thicket of poison oak and go pee over a stream while i got to use the restroom but right but that's also him lo- judging right that's also him saying this isn't he's cool. judging yeah. but but by and large it doesn't affect him directly right well but he he, he accepts the other parts of the experience because he's like hey well i am a white male so yeah. bully for me. oh white male privilege how convenient you are <laughs> well, al, al was not gonna send a black woman back in time to yeah. no to, no <laughs> and, not but, work the, but because not he's so much by this privilege he 
because he's insulated by the privilege, I, I, I guess from a narrative perspective, it makes it very easy because then you can sidestep the thorny questions like, sure, life was great if you're white and male, but you know, if you're if you're say a single white female who couldn't even get her own line of credit oh, in yeah. 1960, how easy or how hard would it have been to be someone like Sadie? Or if you're an African American man, they still had the I can't remember if it's called the Green Pages or the Green Books. But up until very recently in the U.S., there was a company that actually published a directory of African-American friendly businesses for traveling African-American families because you were talking about a time when people could be turned away from hotels and restaurants right. simply by how they look. Right. But Stephen King, I mean, the good thing yeah. about this is he doesn't shy away from it. And he has Jake basically uh, – th- that's one of the things that he always notices is that as, as idyllic mm-hmm. as his life is, he mm-hmm. – th- this is this is what I appreciate is that he – King shows both sides. There are things about the simplistic, you know, life or the simpler life of that time that he appreciates and there are things that are bad. And, you know, it's yeah. just different. And things about mm-hmm. it are good and things about it are bad. Um yeah. when we leave Jody and we see him on his mission spending time in Fort Worth and then in Dallas, you know, he's showing a a very different kind of environment. That's a really kind of a miserable, poor unfriendly Mm -hmm. environment and this is the environment that lee harvey oswald is living in well and i think he doesn't gloss over how hard it is to be you know an unattached female right like well i mean sadie Sadie has not had things easy you know and i think he goes into a lot of detail about that and about just how miserable her life has been in many ways and i think that's you know she's a great character i honestly you know yeah he does do a great job of amplifying the social pressures and how they could undermine your your support networks because Sadie, you remember after um, Sadie's, the incident that shapes Sadie for the subsequent remainder of the narrative, her mother comes out after having carpooled with her attacker's parents. Her mother comes yeah. out and upbraids her for, for her it, role in this And she's going to get fired from her job because she was attacked. Yeah. You can't, ha- you can't yeah. have that. That was that was the killer for me. Like the, the part where I'm like, oh, come on. Are they really, was this really, like someone is attacked and they say, well, the school board's got to fire her now. It's too much of a scandal. Oh, yeah. I, well, yeah. No, it's absolutely plausible. I kind of believe that. From a small town yeah. perspective, I, I kind of believe small that. Small southern town, absolutely, absolutely plausible. Yeah. I mean, I and I think, you know, given that, I, I don't know, I, I feel like, like I said, I think Sadie is a great character. And I think, you know, if you don't fall in love with her at least a little bit while reading this, then you probably aren't, you know. Aren't hooked up right. Probably dead. You're probably dead inside. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I think, you know, there, I, I think... You know, without making it a book that's overtly about look how awful racism was in the South in you know the fifties and sixties, mm-hmm. which you know there could have been a book. There, there have there been, been many there are books plenty books. Yes. There are many books written about. It. He could have written that book, but you know it was not that book. And so I think he does. You know, the references to it might seem a little glancing, but I think they do inform a lot of what the setting of this book is, and part of what makes, for example, Dallas such a disturbing town in many ways mm-hmm. is this whole pervading element of that even if it's not something that we're constantly beat over the head with i'm actually impressed at how little like how few references to the politics of the age and all of that he manages to slide in but still manage to paint the overall picture of the various towns and the way society was at that point in time because i mean you could have with a with a book about the Kennedy assassination, you could have gone much more deeply into the whole Lee Harvey Oswald thing. And instead, you get kind of a third-party perspective of the leaflets and you hear a couple conversations when Jake's listening on the omnidirectional microphone. But on the whole, there's not a lot of, yes, 
this is how people were feeling. This is how people hate, you know, the president. This is what why people love the president. You know, you skip a lot of that. Yeah, other than the the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is an, a nice little yeah. little bit where you get that that sense of living through it, and he's living through it, realizing how upsetting it is to people at the time, and uh, you know he knows how it turns out, but they but they don't. Um, but uh, other than that, really, I mean that that's that's the one that's the one that struck me that 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 he's watching as as people live through that, and they're very upset. On the sexism thing, uh, one last time on Sadie, the, the one uh, one aspect of it I thought that illuminated Jake's character, and I don't even know if it was intentional or not, is that so Jake is from the future and he's having this relationship with Past Lady, and Past Lady, for all her modernity, still is a product of the gender roles of her time, and mm-hmm. I thought that Jake seemed a little bit too okay with that. Like that he's, he's, you know, I, you would think when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, boy, if I was from the future and I was dealing with a female who was like this, I would constantly be saying, you know, you have rights and you should, you'd be trying to turn them into a women's liver because like you don't want them. But on on the other hand, sometimes too, you know, it's so quaint to hear the phrase women's liver. It's easy to fall into the role of like, well, you know what? Hey, this is kind of nice. She defers to me. She makes me food. And that's While you're up, damning. I can use a beer. <laughs> yeah, and that's damning to Jake's character or just right. a general, you know, the male character is like, intellectually, you may know it's wrong. But when you're in that environment, you have someone who's just happy to serve you. And you're like, well, you know what? Why fight it? And that's, I thought that was a great comment, it was, whether it was intentional or not, you know. And again, oh, white male privilege, you are so convenient. <laughs> yeah, and we're supposed to think Jake's a good guy, but he, he, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't protest too much about the... Well, no, I about, could just stay I mean, here forever and let Kennedy be assassinated and live this awesome life that I found with these people, right? And, uh, yeah, and not worry too much about, like, Sadie, I want you to get away from your horrible uh, former husband, but don't... You know, it's okay if you stay kind of like a 50s, 60s woman. You know, you don't have to go fully up to believing you're an equal human being mm-hmm. with me. As long as you don't ask me to do the dishes, babe, whatever. <laughs> so so what happens, one of the things that happens throughout his tra- his travels in the past is this sense that the the past doesn't want to be changed. Right? What what does he what does he call it? Is it the obdurate? The obdurate, obdurate past. Obdurate past. Which I really liked that. I mean, we, and we've seen that in time travel uh, stories before, but I, I, I really like that, that that there will be some degree, uh, you know, of of resistance from the past. And so the conflict in the story isn't necessarily, you know, Jake versus Lee Harvey Oswald. It's like Jake versus history, right? Versus the timeline versus what actually happened. And he has to try and overcome what actually happened and there are a lot of kind of nice moments where mm-hmm. uh you know terrible things happen to him especially when he's rushing to try and get to Dealey plaza on the day of where one ridiculous thing after another <laughs> it is unbelievable the obstacles that history keeps throwing up it's it's like a final destination movie at that point right it's like everything is going to go wrong now <laughs> but i love in previous instances of the book they're very you know he's very frustrated by the obdurate past and he's like oh keep continually hitting up against a wall and moving through fog but on that day they're basically just like yep the past is gonna try and stop us let's just roll with it it isn't that there didn't really feel like there were any stakes until you actually got into the building whereas in previous uh, i liked it when he had the runs it was, was kind of like you know when you when you realize that you're you know skating on marbles or whatever it's like just, there's no other option, right? <laughs> yeah, you just got to go with it. You just got to roll with it. Yeah. yeah. 
Plus, the biggest source of internal tension for him was gone because he had managed to convince Sadie that he wasn't a raving lunatic. He was, in fact, a guy from the future who had to kill the president. From the future. And once she was okay with that. And he convinced himself that Oswald was the only person. Deserved to die. Yeah. Honestly, I think I wish he would have shot Oswald's mom, too, because she was just a piece of work. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So so portraying Oswald is fascinating because, you know, I'm not sure how how clear a view people have of Lee Harvey Oswald. And as as with many books that we've discussed on this on on this podcast, I'm not sure uh, whether whether, you know, he did a lot of research for this. So I'm going to just assume that I learned some interesting things about sort of uh, how Lee Harvey Oswald came to be and his and his. You know, and I, I thought that was fascinating to get a little idea of this guy and 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 to see you can kind of see how he ended up the way he he did, but that's not to say that you really have a lot of sympathy for him. You know what's a little freaky was was reading, you know, I'm reading the book last night and you know maybe halfway through at that point and talking about Oswald and his family, and it suddenly occurs to me like his daughter must still be alive, right? His, his wife. That's <laughs> so I'm like Googling. His wife is yeah, still like, alive. Oh, his kids right. are in the I know, 50s. I know. They're, I looked him up. Like... His wife is still But that, that kind of struck yeah. me was I, because I had forgotten that I was reading a historical fiction book that, you know, but that is about real people. Yeah. And so it was kind of, there was a bizarre moment of like, you know, going to bed last night and reading the book and suddenly realizing, I mean, this isn't entirely fiction. This is, a lot of this is, you know, factual. <laughs> So one of the things, um, again, given that this book is called Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, I think one of the interesting effects that I felt as I read it was, as it got started, I was very excited about, oh, he's going to go back in time, and what's going to happen? What are the mechanics of him changing and interceding in the in the assassination, and what's that going to mean? And I found after he left Jody, and was focused entirely on Dallas as the events got closer that I was struck that I was not as interested as I was in, in in Jake's life and his interpersonal relationships. And it's funny. And he's, he's put, they're all, they're all constrained or they're all, uh, you know, he's having problems in his relationship with Sadie at that point. And he's sort of fallen out with the people because they found out that he falsified his, his records as you do when you're a time traveler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But mm-hmm. did anybody else have that have that feeling? Like by the time I got to the real in depth, like the research and the machinations about uh, Oswald, um, Stephen King had taken me all the way around to where this book that I started reading that was a, about the Kennedy assassination. By the time it got to the mechanics of the Kennedy assassination, I kind of wanted to just go back to the guy who was teaching English in the small town in Texas. You kind of know going into the book that even if he does succeed in preventing Kennedy's assassination, it's not going to be for the better. And that idea kind of builds up steam subconsciously. And so the stakes are kind of gone when you think about it, whereas everything he does in Jody, that's a whole blank slate. Well, and he can reset it if it doesn't work out, but he can't ever reset his life, right? He's it, yeah, experienced yeah. all The stakes this. are so much higher for him when they're personal than when it's this big abstract save the cheerleader, save the world type mission. Um and anyone who's read, anyone who's a fan of alternate history or alternate fiction tends to know that these authorial exercises are usually predicated on the notion that history has worked out for the best. And this book is, is really no exception to that. So you kind of go into that with the bedrock premise throwing in the back of your mind. And then the question just becomes, okay, how is King going to write himself out of this where you have to be okay with the fact that he has to let Kennedy die? And I think he, I think he pulls out a very tidy ending. But oh. the fact is, is that shooting the president 
has those have far lower dramatic and personal stakes to somebody who's invested in Jake and Jody, the town, than, you know, the, the dramatic stakes inherent in what goes on between Jake and Sadie and Sadie's crazy ex and the town of Jody. You know, I mean, I could, to be frank, I could not have cared less if, if Kennedy got shot or didn't get shot. I was yeah, a lot well, more interested. Isn't, that, isn't yeah. that funny that that we get to that point, though? And I think that says something that's about the effectiveness of, of the story that King is telling is by the time I get to I get to Oswald, I'm more concerned about how dealing with the assassination is going to affect Jake's life <laughs> about yeah. the course of of, of history, yeah. whether whether or not uh it doesn't work out and 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 he ends up discovering that that it isn't this assumption that al has made that it's going to be better with kennedy living may not be true so you know so yeah so i i I, he never really made the case for why kennedy should be saved like it was half-hearted we got al al makes the case to jake to convince him like this is an important thing to do and jake goes yeah but you know well would that really made a big difference? And I'll go, oh, no, no, it would have made a big difference. And these kids wouldn't be dying in Vietnam. And, and we would have had all this, that, no, the other No, they'd thing. just be dying but, in nuclear holocausts right. and stuff. Yeah. Like but it's, idea. Not, it's not much of a case. Like, he hasn't made the case to the reader. I think that's valid in some ways, right? Because, you know, what happens? Al kills himself before mm-hmm. Jake can really nail it down, right. right? And in some ways, that spurs Jake into action without really thinking, well, is this really worth doing or not? He's just sort of pushed along by events. Yeah, I think I think you needed. I if I had in that beginning section of the book, I Jake to do what Jake did. I think he would have needed stronger motivation than was provided to him. So by the when the end of the book comes along, obviously we're more invested in the local story, and then we're like, and you know what? I wasn't convinced that he that that JFK was worth saving. That it would make a big difference, and Jake didn't seem that convinced. And it's like I think it's a failure of the. The motivation of the plot. It's successful in that we like Jake's new story and the personal stakes are more important, but it's a kind of a failure that it's not a big turnaround from this really strong motivation to save JFK. Because I felt like very early on, and maybe it's also because, uh, like Lisa said, you know, you know, this is not going to be, oh, he'll save him and everything will be better. You know, that's not going to happen. Uh, so, uh, well, I think there's this idea that pervades pop culture, or at least pop culture among baby boomers of a certain stripe that that's the key phrase, I think. If only Kennedy had lived, this golden era of Camelot would have continued through 1968, mm-hmm. and everyone would have skipped hands as they walked into the yeah everyone skipped would have skipped hands as they walked into the Peace Corps, and the war on poverty would have been affected, and civil rights would have happened painlessly. Blah blah blah. And so, because Kennedy died, everyone sees that this sort of hopeful baby boomer rah rah well, productive alternate future going with it. It's the flashpoint theory, right? Yeah, it's yeah. the idea that there is a single event that causes all these ripples, whereas. I think it was fascinating that they threw in the uh, the Ray Bradbury story, Sound of Thunder, mm-hmm. um, whereas, you know, the idea of this originating idea of this butter, the butterfly effect, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, in theory, in this time travel universe, it's it's just as important. It's like Kennedy dying is just as important as someone stepping on a butterfly, depending on how you look at it. Right. Because they mm-hmm. both have ripples. It's just a question of what what they what they touch. But uh, mm-hmm. I think to John's point that that Stephen King being older than us. And having lived through this, there is a resonance that I think is suggested and that Al obviously feels and that Stephen King clearly feels that having lived through it, that that of course people think, 
oh, if only Kennedy had lived. I think it's because we're more cynical, and that generation became cynical when the president was assassinated. That was like the end right. of the innocence for the, that generation. But I think you take that as given that the, the, the reason that Stephen King, he does a little bit of work to say, well, no, here's why it's important that Kennedy should not be assassinated. But, um, you know, he he goes in with a, a little stronger implicit kind of assumption that, you know, of course we all feel like, you know, what would have happened and it would have been better because then things got got you know got bad whereas those of us who didn't live through that look back and are like really would that would it have been or or wouldn't have mattered and you get cynical yeah, we, we don't we don't buy that line of reasoning we don't buy the bs no another yeah. reason not to buy it is when you look at the cycles of human history or cultural history no one idea ever pops up in isolation like ideas get replicated across right. cultures in certain time periods all the time and so even if kennedy had been a precipitating event towards this generational shift into hippiedom and vietnam and so on and so forth even if he had lived something else would have prodded it i okay. mean people seem to forget that richard nixon was going to be a successful politician in the 60s no matter what so one one sad thing uh, i think well sad thing i don't know um one thing that bothered me is uh when jake emerges from the portal back into the future after he's done all this and lived this life um we see that as we've as we've said up to this point um there isn't a good future that after he's changed the past and saved Kennedy, there are all these earthquakes and, uh, you know, nuclear war and uh, Maine is now part of Canada and there's not a lot of power. They only have power a few days and there are hoodlums who are running around with, you know, hoodlums in Canada. This can't be teenage hoodlums in (laughs) Canada. And, And this is one of my problems with it is, is I don't mind the fact that, uh, there's a really quick recap of history from that point to 2011. Um, I don't, I don't mind that because that is sort of not the point of the book to to detail the alt history of what's happened since then. What bothers me is that it feels, it felt to me kind of like a cop out that the moment that he changes the past, there are earthquakes and. Uh, you know, there's a giant earthquake in Los Angeles and things like that. Yeah, that it wasn't just the past that he changed. It was like, oh, and also this Everything unseen force. You broke the universe, this, uh, this unseen right? force is tearing the earth apart. So it's like, well, it might have worked out. It, it's not like a normal right. time travel story. It's like what you did changed it. It's like what you did and, by the way, earthquakes and stuff that are, yes. you know. And, by the way, earthquakes should be the title. I'd like to have seen the argument that Kennedy um, – would have uh, not made the had world a, a better place and, and was if, impeached. If he had, right, well, exactly. I don't think that's important. I mean, I don't think that the Kennedy factor of it is is, is important at all. What we're talking, no, to say that I think it's not so much that, you know, okay, yes, he, he stopped Kennedy from being killed and that was a big change. But I think the fact that, you know, there's also this cumulative effect that they start talking about at the end, right? There's so many things that have gotten changed. So much has gotten out of balance with all of Al's trips back and forth. Yes, the meat, the hamburger. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we're right. talking and about. And with Jake's trip. This is why the yellow card man is bonkers. It's, it's been 40 years of beef. So everything, the whole reality is unstable. And again, you know, not to harp on it too much, but if you, you know, yeah, there, is is a, a, there is another resonance with the Dark Tower here. Whereas there's this idea of the world sort of shaking itself apart because people keep screwing with it. Yeah, I would have loved to see more earthquake-type things happening earlier on, where you get the idea that the world is slowly falling apart, rather than, oh, the second JFK dies and, you know, Sadie dies, everything goes to hell. L.A. falls off the coast, yeah. He makes a bet on a horse race, (laughs) and the horse that he knows is the winner of the Triple Crown breaks its leg, right? And it's like, oh, geez, wait a second, something is not quite 
right, you know, little bits. He comes back five years, which is well, you know, he's got to wait five years, which is important to the whole plot of the book and everything. But right. but realistically speaking, realistically speaking, in a time travel story, if you if you put a single person from the future into the past five years on, there is no way that Lee Harvey Oswald gets that same apartment, that JFK had, it goes to Dallas at the same time, right. that he drives so, in the convertible, the, the, that, that's the there's no way, because the, the, the changes of, I mean, it's debatable that even if you blink that guy into existence for three seconds and he tapped one guy in the shoulder in Florida and then disappeared, there's no way those people are in the same spot. Well, that's where the obdurate pa- pass comes in. It's how, how yeah, you it's how you define, you have to have a correcting effect because you're right. Otherwise, things would be completely different. You know, it, the it's hamburger totally, meat yeah. not being available would be enough right. to change well, everything. He freaks out, right, on his last trip back when he starts like, oh, my God, I mean, what have I done just by buying you know, a shirt or taking right. a taxi right. rabbit. And, and he was right. But yeah, again, once again, there's this unseen force that, you know, whatever this, uh, this, this force is that's, uh, and Stephen King loves doing this. He never calls it God or anything or tries not to call it God, but it's just like <laughs> the, except at the end of the stand, the unseen force that's, it's, it's him. It's, it's him, the writer. Well, that's really. like a leitmotif through all of his work is that there are forces beyond your comprehension that toy yeah. with you. Yeah, and they have, and they thing. have a purpose and they have a plot, you know? I think the yeah. one thing that's sort of subtle here that, is uh, it's brought up towards the end of the book, but I think it's interesting. Is not just the obdurate past, but the obdurate self. Whereas mm-hmm. in theory, right, Jake says, "Well, I can just go back and fix everything I did wrong the first time." Right? Mm-hmm. right. So I'll he just comes be back five years older. Right. Exactly. And but I don't know about you, but like you know, in some ways that might feel like a cop out. But in this, he decides he can't do it, and I felt the weight of that. Yeah, and it makes you feel tired. You just read all these pages. Yeah. You're like, oh. Well, I I mean, not just that, but like think about all that he has been through and all having to go through he it. He can all change again. the past, but he can't change his life. He's living his right. life, and that cannot be erased. You know, he right. he has to live with the fact that he lived those five years, and that can't. He, he can hit the reset button on the universe, and it doesn't matter. He it fell in love memory. and 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 saw her be horribly wounded and then killed by Lee Harvey Oswald. Ouch! That was bad you know, luck. Thing- I was kind of rooting for him to go to Groundhog Day. At, at the beginning of the book, I'm like, I, it would be neat if he did a Groundhog Day thing. And when it became clear that he was going to do a one one iteration Groundhog and Dairy. I, I saw how many pages it took him to do that. I yeah. realized there's not not enough room for him to do it for the rest. But I would have been perfectly happy for him to Groundhog Day the whole book. No, see that yeah. that would have worked for me. Mm. Five years, oh. wouldn't you've gone crazy after year number two? I was not sure that that Stephen King was going to do that and say. So I decided that since I couldn't change the past, I would just go back and meet all those people and live my life in that little town in Texas. No, I mean iterations, like more than once, right? Like five, just like Groundhog's Day, where the first time it takes a long time, and then that's you, a very different book. Yeah, right. It would have lost all the weight. It would have lost all the emotional weight. Yeah, I will say there's a point. Uh, after Sadie dies, where he is considering that, Jason, where he's like, well, I'll just, you know, I could just go back and live in my life and ignore JFK and right. all of that. And be five um, years older. Yeah, but that that moment when he's contemplating that, you as the reader just kind of think, oh gosh, he has, I mean, can you imagine having to, you, you live through the beginning of the Sadie relationship and the middle of the Sadie relationship and all of that and having to go through all of those steps again and also because you see in the first town in Maine where, you know, that you're basically playing through a script. If you can yeah. imagine having to relive through some of these moments and then basically feel like you're on script. Yeah. And you won't be able to do it. No, because you're watching doomed little children. And, and uh, she wouldn't have fallen in love with him. That's 
That's the problem. Yeah. Not just yeah, because he's no. older, but she wouldn't have loved him because he wouldn't have been the same person. Yep. Well, no. Because he would have known everything that would have happened, right? So you, yeah, you or know. just you just you know living through that changes you as a person. Yeah. So you're not ready to have that romantic like you know you're not ready to make the yeah. connection. That's the key of the book, right? You can't go back and change the past because it's already been lived through in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know that I think that's the that's the conclusion that he comes to, right? This all, all already happened in some ways. I can't make it happen again, even if I'm not seeing it from like the first person perspective. Um, so I have to let it be. And he, you know, he makes that huge decision at a certain point to say, you know, do I save, do I go back and, and spend all this time with the love of my life? Or do I essentially, you know, take the sacrifice and save the larger, you know, save the world at large, uh, such as it is. So in a, uh, in a previous podcast, I believe the it might have been the Neil Stevenson podcast. I I said something negative about Stephen King, which is that um, I, I I said that you know stylistically, I thought that uh, there are plenty of writers who have sort of more more flair and more style than Stephen King, and you know he is not a showy writer. He is workmanlike. He has he has a style all all his own, but it is very recognizably. You could give me a page. A Stephen King, and I bet without any name on it, and I bet you I could figure out that it was Stephen King because he does have a style. But what struck me in this story is he he is a great storyteller. He oh yeah he is the the thing that that sets him apart is I mean he's got interesting world building and he's got an interesting perspective and his style is kind of interesting. But he is just a great storyteller. This this story these characters I was absolutely engrossed in 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 this story and so although people i think beat up stephen king because he's had such success and he sold so many books and he writes he's written so many books as john and lisa can attest he um he he really is remarkable at spinning a story and making you want to follow absolutely i will go blue in the face defending stephen king as a craftsman because i think he's a master of the storytelling craft I, I think he has a. I, I think he. I, I think he thinks long and hard about the best way to tell a story. Craftsman is a good word for it too, because yeah. I mean, and, and if you read On Writing, which is an excellent book oh, that anybody who writes book. should read, it's great. Yes, but Craftsman also, in the sense that he is not going to be the most poetic, right, of writers. He is not. He doesn't have that. He has a workmanlike, in in a good way, a craftsman. <sighs> Uh, you know he is a cra- crafter of stories and of language and he knows what he's doing and he does a very good job of it and that that's not to be looked down on because there are lots of people who've written lots of highfalutin prose that has beautiful fragments and beautiful sentences and it and it falls apart and is terrible as See, a whole i think right? i think king has a, a superb grasp on on the language that he chooses and individual word choices because he I know a lot of people say he's wordy, but he does a great job with one or two well-turned sentences that will remain in your brain indelibly. <laughs> um, I find his word choices to actually be quite economical sometimes and very, very evocative. I mean, he's not going to be one of these these pro stylists where you fall to your knee in reverence over the 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 way right. his 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 words. It's like poetry. Oh, they they are as if angels wept, yeah. you know. But it's it's instead you can you can actually see these people and hear them in the yes. back of your as you and as there's you nothing read. wrong and, with that. No. no, that's fantastic. You know, he doesn't use flashy words, but he, he does, tells a good story and stuff like that. Uh, and one of the examples that comes up from the great literature is like Hemingway, very simple writing, right? But he was, you know, it, he could get a lot out of a few simple words. Uh, 
with Stephen King, the complaint is not so much that he, or not so much that he's like Hemingway; it's just that, that he's corny, that he's you know mm-hmm. kind of ham-fisted and corny, and, and the Madonna thing, which is classic old school Stephen King. People are like, <laughs> yeah, but that's kind of like if you don't if you don't buy into that, you're not into it. So, the passage that I highlighted here is it's corny, uh, it's cliche, and it's like, and when I read it, I'm like, I. He didn't make that up because I must have read that before because it's so corny and it's so cliche. But the magic of Stephen King and the reason why I think he's actually a, a, quite a good writer in his own way, uh, ignoring the storytelling entirely, is that he can get you to a point with all his other skills and tools to where this corny cliche thing that you swear you've heard before on like a Hallmark greeting card wraps around. It wraps all the way around the corny meter and pops back up into like emotional <laughs> mm-hmm. resonance. And you're like, how did he even do that? Uh, and so, so this is towards the end of the book. It's two sentences where he's uh, he's writing uh, about how everything has ended with Sadie and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, hearts don't really break. If only they could. Uh, in isolation, if you have not read this book, you're like, this guy's an awful writer. Come on. Hearts don't really break. <laughs> if only they could. But when I read that line, I'm like, he got me. He he managed he manages to make that line that line there mm-hmm. work because of everything that's built around it and it you know it allows you to disable the part of your mind that's going to mm-hmm. shoot that those two sentences down with lasers and say this is not good writing sir you need to think harder about what you're going to write no because you think if hearts could break then you'd be out of your misery i know it's a cliche it's a hallmark yeah. card it's not yeah. you a know, terrible hallmark it's, card, by it's the way. a cheap it's a cheap insight right it's a cheap insight uh yeah. but he really but he, but did. He earned it yeah. And, right. And I highlighted that passage. I'm it, like, you got me. It's right, a heartbroken character who has lived through this to get to that point. Mm-hmm. The key to this book. And we've lived it through and we lived it with we him. Did. No, no, no. I found the key. It's the last page, actually. Um, this is the this is the part I highlighted where it says, um, she is in a dream and so am I. Like all sweet dreams, it will be brief, but brevity makes sweetness, doesn't it? Yes, I think so. Because when the time is gone, you can never get it back. Yeah, and this is a, a, a ah. classic Stephen King thing where he spends so little time doing that thing that we we're just talking about, where he he's like talking to the reader about about the the meta question and the ennui, mm-hmm. and you know, lots of writers do that throughout the whole book. Stephen King is like straight ahead. I'm going to tell you a story, and he saves that. He saves that. He doesn't mm-hmm. spend the whole book having people, you know, the author or the car- or, or the narrator or anybody. Especially with the narrator, because a lot of times the narrator is just like, "Here's what happened, and this happened, and then it happened, and then, and then, you know, in the mm-hmm. middle, in the end, or in a pivotal scene, the narrator will say two sentences that are not advancing the plot. They're commenting on the action in a very simple way, and they stand out because the narrator mm-hmm. or the character or the writer, or whoever is the, the voice in the book, doesn't do that normally, and it jumps out at you. Well, and he has a great line about that early on in the book, doesn't he? Doesn't Jake say something about at base? You know, he's talking about his students very early on. He says something about the basic job of a, of a storyteller is this happened and then this happened. And, and it's then the this. story that matters. Yeah. It's not I mean, the writing. I, and that's that is the sum up. That is the sum up of Stephen King. Right. And don't take your time to go. Let me tell you why this was important. And isn't this dramatic? <laughs> and he felt this. This, You know, it's. No, just tell the story. But there is a moment of reflection, a moment or two of reflection. And you can land hearts don't really break if only they could. You can land that if you've built the structure such that that, that earns its little slot there. And that, you know, you need you, the characters you know. and you need the good story. And you have a microcosm of it in um, what's the name of the, the janitor in the beginning of this book? Harry. Yeah, Harry. you have a you have a microcosm Harry in this in Harry's essay where I mean, he says it. He says it oh, from God, the beginning and you you learn a little bit about the essay before you actually get to read some of it. 
And initially you're like, okay, yeah, I, I can more or less believe that this was a heartbreaking essay. And then he actually lets you read an excerpt. And yes, it's it's as poorly written as painted, and it's also heartbreaking. It's it's it it hooks you like there are, there are just hooks that keep you moving through the way it's written in a way that a much more slickly produced mm-hmm. essay wouldn't do it. Because I don't know about you guys, but after I finished reading that passage, I like actually had to put down the Kindle for a minute or two, and you know go snuggle my daughter and then come back to the book. <laughs> oh, it's chilling, and actually that shows yeah. that that Stephen King, you know he he has. A, he's a sociopath. No, not what you're saying. No, he is. Well, <laughs> yes, he's a, he's he's crazy, and he's going to kill us all. Um, no, he he. <laughs> That's right in his wheelhouse, though. Oh, That's dead kids are like totally his thing. He is really good at dead kids. He he right. knows all the tricks. He knows how to pull them out. And the fact is, the end of this book. I mean, I was. I mean, at the climax where there's a confrontation between Jake and Lee Harvey Oswald in the book depository and. Uh, and a, a shot goes awry, and Sadie is mortally wounded, and all of that. That was exciting, but I didn't find it particularly affecting. It was really like Jake is going through the motions of what he has to do, and of course the girlfriend, it's sort of like an episode of a TV series, of course the yeah. character's girlfriend is going to be horribly accidentally shot and die, because... But the, that's how it but the denouement there. But mm-hmm. the last, is what, is what gets the last <laughs> scene pays off everything, and is amazingly affecting like that room <sighs> got really a, a bad man came in and kicked sand in my eyes and made me cry a little bit at the end of that i mean it, it is so affecting at the end of this book he is just he has figured out there are some writers and we talked you know like you're contrasting him with stevenson there are some writers who tickle that little intellectual fancy part of your brain right the oh is that so clever i appreciate that and then there are writers like stephen king who grab that you know the lizard brain the id part of you <laughs> and just mm-hmm. And just shake it, you know, and and he's figured out how perfectly, like like you guys said, like his craft is perfectly honed to, to tap into that. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's the beauty of, I mean, the fact that in the in this final scene, the fact is that Jake and Sadie have a connection, and and there are alternate, you know, alternate versions of them, and in this case, it's a Sadie who is now an old lady and has never met him before yeah. and lived that life without him, and yet they still have a connection and he goes back there to Jody in the present and meets her mm-hmm. and dances with and her. then dances oh. with her. And it's like, so somewhere in time you can practically see Christopher Reeve and James Seymour <laughs> making misty eyes at each other as they go through this, but it's really touching. <laughs> oh, I think that, and doesn't he, doesn't he make a, he, he makes a Jack Finney reference in the, yeah. in the afterward. Oh, in the afterward. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but it's just it's it's. I, yeah. I looked up because I have that book on my shelf, <laughs> and I was looking up as I finished reading it, looking up at the Jack Finney time and again on my shelf. Oh, yeah, that was a good book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but such a great and there's the payoff right after all this sort of failure of changing time. He, I felt like that it could have ended and it would have not been particularly fulfilling. And then and then when he goes. After having sort of like returned to the present and being kind of disconnected from everything, and he goes to Texas, and it was kind of you know I was almost giddy. I was like, oh yeah, he's gonna go, yeah, go see what's there, and it was yeah. So I, I was I was really impressed. I mean to to wrap to wrap this up, I don't know what I really expected from this. I, the most recent Stephen King book I've read is I don't know. I mean it it was a long 
time ago. I mean, I, I think it might have been one of the Dark Tower, like this third Dark Tower book maybe, but it's been a long time since I've read a Stephen King book. And I was, you know, I, I, I really liked it. It is one of my favorite books of 2011. I thought that it... You know, I, I I thought the time travel mechanics mechanics were interesting, but in the end, I thought this story of the the you know the love story that's happening with the ticking of the clock of the impending assassination and then the resolution at the end. Uh, you know, I just I really I, I enjoyed it way more than I thought that I would. I I kind of wished that I didn't. You know, I wanted to talk about it, and that's one of the reasons I finished it so rapidly but at the same time i was torn because i didn't want to because it's (laughs) because it was so engrossing and so wrapping up you kind of want to savor it um and so i was sad to read 500 pages in 24 hours or so but i mean you know it was still i agree it was it was incredibly i've incredibly effective book and a really well-told story well i think this is definitely the one he'd written before this was under the dome and i think this is definitely leagues above under the dome um this is this is I think a whole new level of storytelling compared to that one. John, what about this one? What's your verdict on 112263? You probably shouldn't have let me go last, but you can always re-edit this into different sequence if you would like. Uh this was not my favorite recent Stephen King book. Uh I at this point and I I really feel like I've read so many Stephen King books that he has to do a lot to surprise me. And when I read this book, I think it's like, oh, this is like 50% this book, 25% that book, you know. <laughs> I he has trouble with endings. I have trouble with Stephen King's endings, and he has trouble with them. And, you know, this is the thing we do. We read the book together, and we both know how it's going to end. He doesn't and we have both trouble. Know... He, th- he thinks they're fine. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it seems like... <laughs> Daniel Stevenson has trouble yeah, with endings. There are some things that he does in the endings that I don't like. Let's put it that way. And he does them again here, and I continue not to like them. It, it's... So which which he... what, what, what in specific? Because I love the coda in Texas. I don't really love the... Uh, the the couple of chapters before that. Well, it's see the thing is with with me and Steve, uh, we both know we have an understanding. I know that he's going to do the things that annoy does, me. But does this he point. know this? Yeah, yeah. We're on first name basis. I I know that he's going to do things, but I I accept that he's going to do those things. Like for example, under the dome, uh, under the dome was not a good, as good a book as this, uh, but it's more. Uh, I have an easier time with that because it's schlock. And I was perfectly fine to go through Under the Dome, even though I knew every single thing that was going to happen and practically how it was going to play out and that I wasn't going to be satisfied with the explanation at the end. And I wasn't. It was like, you know, I'm right with you. And in this one, it's kind of almost worse when he's got like a, a heart of a good book there and a really promising start, but then he just goes to the ending. So my, my complaint about it mainly is that when when he goes back and see, sees how things have gone wrong, I mean, you already covered a lot of things with the earthquakes and stuff with Zoki. When he goes out and sees how things have gone wrong, it's like, Steve, you got to decide – are you going to, is this, are the details of this important? Uh, is this going to be a book about the alternate history or the details of time travel or those mechanics or whatever? Or is this going to be that other book that you were writing? And he's like, well, it's mostly that other book when I'm writing, but let me do you this thing here with the Mad Max guys. Let me and give you a thumbnail sketch of the young hooligans yeah, in the Canadian and, province. And-, and, and it's like, sometimes like, I would have been happy if you wanted to write that book, I would have been with you, but you were writing this other book, but you're like, but no, I can sneak this thing in here. And then the ending with the thing that, that kind of maudlin ending that, that Jason was buying, maybe I've seen it too many times from him. <laughs> Uh, I bought it. 
I was wow. if I and I always go through this thing. I'm like when I'm reading the Stephen King book, I'm like, Steve, I know how you're going to end this, but here's how I would end it, and I would like it better. And he's like, Nope, I'm not doing it that way. And I'm like, All right, you know, do it your way, and I'm with you. And the way I would have ended it is uh, the two two ways I would have ended this. One way is to have. Uh, and this could have, again, before even reading the book, you just know the plot of the book and you know what it's going to be about. I already talked about the Groundhog Day thing. One way to do it would be the Jake tries as hard as he can to make sure Lee Harvey Oswald's the lone gunman. It turns out he's not the lone gunman. Uh, but rather than, you know, I stop Lee Harvey Oswald, but then he still gets shot by the other gunman. You stop him. You think he's the only one, but then you see this shadowy guy in the grassy knoll go off to the side. And it's like it's the shadow of doubt of whether you really solved it and stuff like that. That wasn't what they were doing. Fine. If you're going to do it this way, and he goes back and he finds everything, you know, all messed up, I don't need to know how it's messed up. In yeah. fact, you telling me specifically how it's messed up is worse. I I would be happy if he came back through the portal and it was just gray ash everywhere and snow, like a scene from the road or something, and then he just walked right back through. You know what I mean? Or, or something yep. like that. And but, but he feels compelled to put in that one or two or three chapters there, and he feels compelled to have the guy go down and, and meet her when she's old. I don't need any of that. I don't need meeting when he's... Like, as far as I'm concerned, at that point, he's done all the work he's going to do in that book, and he was successful, and he kind of screws it up in the end. But, but it's, you know, I'm with him. I'm We have an understanding, and I go with it. I don't, I don't agree about the about the very last coda, because I, I like the the reinforcement. Not only, yes, it's it's sweet, and it's sappy, and and it made me cry, but... Um, I like the fact that it reinforces that that town is real and that it, you know, it, 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 and he sees it in the present. I think that, I think there's some closure there that I like that, that he is, you know, he has been profoundly changed by his experience in a way and that it was real and it, and, and th- those people did live there. Uh, I, I liked that part of it. I completely agree with you about the province of Maine section being, yeah, are you really? Because because it, it, even so, it's like <laughs> the old man in the there, wheelchair but... says, "Sit down, Sonny, and let me tell you a, a uh, recap of the last thirty years. It won't be too long, but it'll be a little bit long." I don't need to know all the alternate history. I I I'd rather have it ended like a short story because short stories don't do that because you don't have room. Short stories always end in that other way, and so so do it that way there, you know. And you could still have the same the same coda, the same emotional coda about him realizing that the realizations about life that I thought Dan nailed so well about, you, you know, you can't you can't go back and, and you're, you know, live through that again. and You're a changed person. You can have all those without having him go dance with her when she's 80 or whatever, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't be, I don't begrudge him doing this. And, I, and you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes I, I will say that the one Stephen King book who's ending, I actually uh, liked pretty much it. Un, unqualified no qualifiers nothing you know I, he and i were in exact agreement was the ending of the extended version of the stand and i think that's the only book that he ended 100 percent to my satisfaction hmm. that is I a good ending. <laughs> mm-hmm. very good ending yeah it's my it's my, possibly one of my favorite endings of genre books of all time it is a, it mm-hmm. is a good ending but i did like this ending i did like that he that he wrapped it up and and gave gave me as the reader the kind of appropriate closure for what I had just seen. I think that's part of it too, is just that that I I had invested a lot of time and, and thought into this relationship and so to sort of get that last bit that that it did, you know, that connection was there and it did matter and I, yeah, that was nice. It, it but it, there was some stuff before it got there that was not so nice. Well, so we could we could go on and on and perhaps we will, but I'm going to close up the incomparable book club we should probably talk about Stephen King some more some other time. I think I think we could do a whole podcast about The Stand. We could probably do 80 hours about The Stand, given that it's approximately 5,000 pages long. 
Um, and I'm going to have to read the Dark Tower. the Dark Tower. So we can do a thing about the Dark Tower, I guess. Yeah, yeah the Dark Tower is even longer. Yeah. Yep, I'll have yes. to read it too. It's many, many Serenity books. and Jason, we can all read it together. Ooh. It'll really Side be a book, book club. club. Yes. Uh, but until then, until we read many more things by by Stephen King. Oh, before before we go, by the way, for the uh, purposes of our friends uh, who are following along at home and would like to read the things that the Incomparable Book Club uh, is reading, our next book club selection, I can actually, we've thought ahead far enough that I can say it on the podcast. Our next book club selection is a short story collection by Maureen McHugh called After the Apocalypse. That will be the next thing we read in about a month. So you've got some time to read many stories by Maureen McHugh after the apocalypse. So until the next incomparable podcast, uh, I would like to thank my guests. Uh, Lisa Schmeiser, thank you very much for being here. It was a pleasure. Serenity Caldwell, thank you. Thank you. John Syracuse, thank you for lending your, your encyclopedic knowledge of Stephen King to the proceedings. I'm your lone gunman, Jason. Dan Morin, thank you for being here and for reading the book in like a day. <laughs> I, uh, I plan to do it again next time. That's right. You, you like this. You like working under deadlines. I do. I'm much better really. It's a good thing my job involves lots of deadlines. Must deadline. finish book. 500 pages. Bang. Just like that. All right. So uh, thanks, thanks everybody, and thanks to the great incomparable listening audience. Until next time, for the incomparable, I'm Jason Snell. Goodbye.